Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about culture and counterculture in the age of platforms. I'm Andrea Dominic. I'm Emily Friedlander. And we're very excited about the show we've cooked up for you today, which marks something of a full circle moment for this podcast. In the spring of 2021, we recorded an interview with the artist and technologist Matt Dryhurst about a little-known technology called NFTs. I didn't know how into NFTs you were. Can you explain what an NFT is? Uh, well, it's or... a non-fungible token. Non-fungible. Which is basically a digital contract that's on the blockchain. You may have heard of it. Seemingly out of nowhere, artists like Grimes and Kings of Leon were netting millions of dollars by uploading their work to something called the blockchain. And in the midst of all the hype, we wanted to take a moment to get clear on exactly what NFTs were and if there was actually a chance that they could help independent artists make a living. Largely thanks to Matt, who is one of the sharpest and most inspiring thinkers we know on all things related to the 21st century creator economy, the conversation ended up being, and remains, one of the most popular episodes we've ever recorded. It brought in a lot of new listeners for us, and one of them was Mark Redito, a Manila-born, Los Angeles-based electronic musician, vocalist, and producer who'd spent pretty much the entire 2010s touring and releasing music, both under his own name and under the moniker SpazKid. Like us, Mark was looking for a way out of the Web2 creator economy grind and looking to explore what these new technologies had to offer. Soon after he got in touch with us, and partly inspired by Matt's words, he dove headfirst into the world of music NFTs, which at the time was still so new that not even Matt seemed to know if they would actually be feasible as a medium. Most of you know how the rest of the story goes. NFTs became a huge cultural meme and also the source of a lot of public derision, something the mainstream cultural imaginary probably associates a lot more with scammy crypto bros who want to financialize everything, rather than independent musicians trying to carve out more artist-friendly alternatives to the Spotify's of this world. Still, even through the recent bear market, that musical counterculture is very much alive and well. And since we last checked in, Mark has gone on to co-helm one of the most ambitious and groundbreaking projects that the music NFT space has seen so far. The project is called Chaos, and bear with us, it's a collection of 45 songs with original artwork released in the form of 5,000 NFT packs, almost like Pokemon card packs, that each open to reveal four randomized songs inside. Kind of like a personalized EP, but on the blockchain. But Chaos is also the name of the 77-person, quote, headless band that came together to produce the collection, comprising musicians, visual artists, lore builders, economists, and more. So Chaos is the latest project from SongCamp, a so-called Web3 laboratory experimenting at the edges of music and the new internet. And it's somewhere between an album, an NFT collection, and a wildly utopian experiment in new forms of democratic human coordination, artistic collaboration, and collective value generation. Not only does Chaos's music actually just slap. But the project offers an immersive artistic and social experience greater than the sum of its parts. 
complete with a storyline centered around the Greek goddess of chaos, Eris. The project has also been strikingly successful by any measure. Since it went live in June, it's generated over $500,000 in revenue, topping Billboard's list of the highest-earning music NFT collections that month. Needless to say, Mark seemed like the perfect person to bring on the show to ponder the very same question we put to Matt, only with a year and a half of hindsight. Given how the space has evolved since the heady bull market days of 2021, is it actually looking like NFTs will save independent music? Mark joins us to discuss how the world of music NFTs, at least at this early stage, is looking more like a counterculture than a mainstream revolution. We also talk about the dire importance of normalizing artistic patronage and the political necessity of tinkering at the edges of what's possible. Not just trying to, quote, fix creative industries as they already exist, though that's also important. We also get into Chaos's inception, how they made a 77-person band even work, and the creativity they unlocked by elevating all of the different forms of labor that went into the project, even including coding and economic design, to forms of artistic expression in their own right. And just a note, you're listening to the free version of The Culture Journalist. For the full version of every episode, plus essays, monthly culture recommendations, and more, you can sign up for a paid subscription over at our Substack at theculturejournalist.substack.com. Hey guys, we're back and ready to talk chaos with none other than artist and ecosystem gardener at Songcamp, Mark Redito. It's great to finally have you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Um, excited to be here. Big fan of the pod. It's just amazing how full circle this is. <laughs> I mean, we've interacted in the past, and so yeah. essentially, I'm grateful to be here, and I'm, I'm excited to uh, to talk with you all. It, it is very full circle because we actually, we first connected with you. You had kindly reached out to us about the podcast and we really stoked to talk to you. And that was right around the time that you made the decision to dive headfirst into Web3. So what inspired you to take that leap and what happened in those first few months after we spoke? Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, it felt like such a long time ago when really it was like a year ago. Even for me, like I barely knew what an NFT was when we first connected, which was like spring of last year. And now my day job is editing articles for a DAO. We've all come a long way. Absolutely. I, I think during that time when we last talked last year, I was in the middle of a sort of like season in my life where I was really just like thinking what my next evolution as an artist could be. And maybe we can touch on this later on. I've had, you know, music industry experience. I've been a full-time artist for a decade. And it came to a point for me where it's like, is this it? You know? And so during that time, there was big hype, you know, in NFTs. I remember there were news about that 
people sale, you know, that grime sale. And it was at a fever pitch, right? And so even before that, I was already sort of watching how this thing is unfolding. And I was like, ah, interesting. Hmm. And that led me to like really diving deep into understanding how the technology works, who are the people behind it, who are the communities behind it, and figure out, well, how can I maybe contribute or maybe participate in the shaping of this system if it indeed becomes the next evolution of the internet. And so that was where I was, you know, during that time. Yeah, it's, it kind of felt like this, someone like broke down a wall and revealed that it wasn't actually a wall, but a door that revealed another path that like all but a few people sort of understood where the path led. And it was an exciting one to potentially walk down. A thousand percent. Yeah. And I remember during that time I was listening to and still listen to Interdependence, which I, I believe you all had Matt Dryhurst at some point in the pod. Oh, yeah, I do remember that episode because I was in the shower listening to it. And I was like, oh, yes, yes. And yes, you know, um, <laughs> we got a shower. Listen, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and and so th that really sort of like activated my interest. I was already interested. But I think the way that Matt sort of like framed it as this could potentially be another avenue to augment creative expression really spoke to me. And so I tried to, to find out, okay, who are these communities who are pursuing or exploring this route, right? That led me to contributing to different communities. The first one that I ever contributed towards was uh, Rarible, Rarible DAO. Did some work there, contributed and sort of like participate in discussions, you know, from the perspective of an artist. And then that led me to like FWB, where I also contributed. And, you know, these like communities that have a strong creative spirit while also holding these nascent technologies and shaping them really spoke to me. And I become very excited. And I think after that, you know, after my sort of like season at FWB, I'm still part of FWB, but not as active. I found SOMCAM. Um, I remember Matthew Chaim on his Twitter posting an announcement of like, we're opening up a camp, a songwriting camp, and it's going to be using like Web3 as an experiment. And so that piqued my interest, reached out to him, filled out the application form. And then a few hours later, we talked. And, you know, from then on, we started working together in Song Camp along with other people, Brian and the Genesis crew. It has been an exciting journey so far. A lot of learnings. I feel like in each camp, my, my knowledge with the technology, not only with the technology, but also its different sort of like domains, say governance or community, I'm upgrading my, my, my knowledge every iteration. What were your experiences like in the music industry prior to Web3? And like, what about those experiences made you drawn to experimenting with these new models? Yeah. Well, first, I'm grateful to have, you know, a career in music. Starting from 2013 up to present, I've been a full-time, you know, producer, musician. I did everything. You know, I, I went out on tour, international tours, nationwide tours, album release cycles, did press cycles, sold merch. So that was 2013 when I started doing this professionally. 2013 and the mid-2010s was then I sense a certain shift 
And during that time too, you know, like Tumblr days and, and you know, early versions of Spotify and, and SoundCloud, those were the sort of like predominant avenues of expression, not only music, but also like visual arts, etc. And yeah, I felt that shift, you know, slowly the streaming model is becoming more and more predominant within the musical landscape. And, you know, around maybe 2019, uh, early 2020, before the pandemic, I came to a realization that the current model that's being offered to artists is currently a one-size-fits-all. What I mean by that is, you know, social media presence, you got to be active on TikTok, you got to be active on like whatever, Instagram, pre-save my single, you know, spam everyone. And that became a little tiring for me and honestly caused a little bit of like burnout and jadedness in me. And so I was like, what else is out there? What else is out there that, that I feel is creative? And that led me to, you know, Web3 and playing with these systems. Really, you know, I was looking for something interesting, something novel with the potential to shape the music industry. It's funny that, like, you mentioned 2013. And I think I talk about this a lot yeah. on this podcast, but... There was a certain energy in the air in 2013 around the possibilities of technology that I think brought a lot of people together, like a certain coterie of people, underground musicians, designers, visual artists, etc., that kind of found each other. And then something weird happened where the same platforms sort of turned around on us and a lot of people sort of lost touch or became isolated or something. And then now I've just, it's anecdotal, but I just have noticed like how many people from that specific time are in a lot of these collectives like Song Camp, FWB, and that have reconnected and come out of the woodwork again. Yeah, that, that's quite an interesting observation, Emily. Sometimes I wonder is that the millennial in us sort of like, you know, because, because I feel like, you know, like the Tumblr days, the SoundCloud days, all of that sort of like really like fostered a sense of like community and belonging. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like maybe contained like this sort of like group of people who are creative, who are artistic, who want to express themselves over the internet and also connect with people who are like them. So there was a time that that was really pretty heavy. Right. But then you're right. Maybe it's also anecdotal, but I also resonate with that. And that is certainly my experience as well. That when these newer sort of like versions of the software, of say Instagram, Facebook, for example, started incorporating a, you know, an algorithmic feed where it values certain content more than others, regardless if you have even a relationship with this person, started to maybe introduce that sense of like disconnectedness, you know? And so, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if that contributed to that feeling of, of being disconnected or lonely or not finding your tribe. This sort of feeling that we're, as you said, we're all in this little box and we can only like communicate with each other with these little boxes that are also all like competing with each other or something. Yes. It, it really resonated with me what you said, Mark, about like this feeling of like, is this it? Because... Mm. Like we've been saying, there was this sense of real momentum and possibility from, I guess, that, that window of the internet from which our generation emerged of like, you know, all the quote unquote, like good things about the internet before everything got like regulated and capitalized on and boxed in of just like, 
wow, we can share all of this music and discover all of this music. And it was, you know, democratized in a good way until the walls of capitalism, I guess, started closing in on it. It's cool because like, you know, on the one hand, we think of the intervening years as being kind of depressing. But what the shift to Web3 and this collective movement towards it is telling me is that that appetite was always there. And as long as that appetite's mm. there, that means so is the possibility and opportunity. Yeah, I love that framing. That that resonates. So tell us a little bit more about Song Camp, um, especially for folks listening who might not be familiar, and how the idea for the Chaos Project came about. For sure. So over at Song Camp, whenever me or my fellow core team members are, are asked, like, what is Song Camp? Our default answer is we are a lab, a creative lab experimenting at the edges of music and Web3. But there's a but there. Um, I think this worked and certainly encapsulates the previous iteration of Song Camp. We're at a point now that our community has grown so large, you know, that it's more than just a lab. It is also a community, you know, a community of creatives, artists, hackers, you know, tinkerers working together to create something new, a culture, maybe a scene, perhaps. I would carefully maybe maybe introduce the, the concept of even a, a label, you know, and this is me speaking personally from my perspective, where a label has a catalog of works, right? And each of these camps that we hold could be seen as an addition to our catalog. And each of these pieces of the catalog build on top of each other. So if you zoom out far enough, you know, say two to three years, my hope is that we create a massive discography of experiments. So that's Song Camp, at least from my perspective. Now, what is chaos? So over at Song Camp, we hold these things called camps, and we do it twice a year. And the most recent one was chaos. Now, backtracking a little bit, what are camps? Camps are a smushing of a hackathon. You know, for the audience who are not familiar, a hackathon is a time-bound sort of like software creation program. Say, for example, build XYZ software over the weekend. You know, so that's a hackathon. And then a songwriting camp. So hackathon, songwriting camp, smushed into one where we produce the content, the art, the visuals, the music. We also build the distribution mechanics, the economics, marketing, and storytelling is also in-house. You can also think of it as like a, a time-bound production house of sorts. Maybe it might be useful to touch on the previous camps. Sure. Yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about those maybe and how those evolved into the idea for chaos and how that maybe differs from what you had done previously. Got it. So, so far, we have three camps. The Genesis camp, composed of myself and 11 other collaborators created three pieces of music. And at the back end of it, we sold it as an NFT that garnered a lot of support. The second one was Electra, 40 plus collaborators creating an interactive game-like experience with lore, you know, storytelling. And also, most importantly, it has music at its core. So think of it as like a, a digital musical. The third one, which is the, the most recent one, Chaos. 77 collaborators, one headless band, 
eight weeks. And so within that quote-unquote headless band, we have people who are creating the lore, writing the lore, people who are working on the economic flow of the project. We have devs working on customized smart contracts. We also have collaborations with OX Splits, which is a royalty splitting smart contract. Obviously, we have the music, the visual. The main prompt for Chaos is like, what would it look like if we all created in the service of one artist entity? What would it look like if we actually, you know, take our egos aside and create as one? What if you become chaos? So that was sort of like the prompt for it. I love it. And just for people who may not be familiar, can you explain the origins of the term headless band and is perhaps a reference to headless brand? Yes, a thousand percent. That's a, that's a good flag. Personally, I take inspiration from other peers in our space. And one of them is the other internet, which is an applied research group. And one of their essays talked about, and I, I believe they, they released this in 2020 or 2019, a headless brand. And so certainly that other internet essay really informed me in thinking about and designing what a headless band could look like. Also, major shout outs to Matt Dryhurst for, for also seeding that idea. I remember he tweeted last year after the Genesis project, something like, could this be the early inklings of a headless band? You know, and so that, that certainly informed us and shaped our, our thinking. And yeah, I guess the headless brand is the brand equivalent of getting a lot of people together to create like a decentralized creative entity that does not have the authoritarian structure of like a hierarchical organization, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. My main takeaway in any sort of like headless XYZ formation is that how can this system be as non-coercive as possible? You know, there are certain types of work and certain types of domains that would help having like a centralized sort of formation. And, and there are certain circles or parts of the system where it's much more helpful to actually have a, a decentralized formation or decentralized decision-making. And so it could be a mix of both is essentially what I'm saying. Yeah, there's definitely like a lot of troubleshooting involved and many, many precedents to like figuring out how to organize a group of people like that. And it's like a huge issue within Web3 in general. Yeah, it's, it's messy. <laughs> but yeah, like how did you do this in chaos? I was thinking about how I was in a band once and it can be super hard to get your shit together in a band of just like three people, let alone 77. So in broad strokes, how did you go about organizing and coordinating such a big group? And how did the creative process and workflow work? Yeah, I resonate with that, Emily. I mean, I, I used to be part of a band too. And it's it's so hard to get shit together. Absolutely. Um, Musicians, especially. Come on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're the worst. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm one. So structure really helped us in, in terms of like coordinating, you know, a group of creative people. And so over at SongCamp, we call this container design. How can we build containers that sort of organize certain deliverables? We have time and rhythm containers. This would be like the schedule of things, making that known to all that this is a schedule, this is the cadence of our communications, and then staying true to it. 
there is a container of scope. Here is the scope of what we need to do. Here is our output and it's due in XYZ day. We also have a spatial container and that's our Discord, our Zooms, our email threads. We also have what I would call a team slash expertise slash domain container because each of our teams within Chaos are, are also grouped in a way where, you know, like the, the engineers have their own pod, they have their own container. Visual artists have their own container. Musicians have their own container. And so th that keeps everything like really tight. And each of these containers or each of these teams would also have their own stores, you know, keeping them in the know, checking in on them, or at least just like having a point person sort of like that they could actually talk to and reach out if they need any assistance. So maybe going back to like the time and rhythm container for eight weeks, we split that into four acts. So act one is order, act two is disorder, act three is entropy, act four is rebirth. These acts are about two weeks long. And so the first week, create a demo. The next week, we master it, you know, and then over and over until we actually reach the end of the sprint. Not only does this introduce a creative prompt and also a framing for how things will be made, but this also gives a systemic direction in the narrative for people to, to actually sort of like maybe integrate into their own work. I have a question kind of about the nomenclature here. Why call it a band as opposed to something like, I don't know, a production house or a label or something else? What makes this a band? An easy analog there is looking at bands, right? When you see a band, they play different types of music. One is a drummer, one is a guitarist, one is a synth player, vocalist, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so when applied to a master project like this, at least in my eyes, this could be seen as a band where the main output is not only the music itself and the art that represents the music, the NFT, but also the distribution mechanics that are also part of this release that made this release happen. And so to me, it makes sense to call it the band. And, and maybe I'm stretching the definition here a little bit. The definition's up to you. It's just a cool framing that one doesn't normally think of and I think is perhaps maybe a little more dynamic than traditional organizational nomenclature. Yes. It has a different sense of possibility to it. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I think in addition to that, it's like a low-hanging fruit for us. We're all musicians or most of us are, are musicians at Song Camon, so band makes sense and it sounds cool. It does sound <laughs> cool. So within the band, chaos includes some roles that expand beyond musicians, even those just sort of typically associated around releasing music. Like there are economists in chaos and what you call lore masters. Tell us mm. a little bit about those roles and why you wanted to include them in this band concept. We have an expanded definition of art. And so we consider all of these things, people who are doing economics or thinking about economics, people 
who are writing the lore or writing the story of chaos, these are all creative acts. And, and to me, these efforts are worthy of being called art and the people making them artists. Because when you think about it, thinking of novel economics for a project like this involves a lot of creative thinking and a lot of like pulling together different elements of, of what's out in the wild, remixing them, and, and then offering it up into like a new version of it. That to me is artistic. Coding is also could be seen as artistic. I remember one of our engineers, Isaac, who created the customized smart contract, which is essentially the core of our NFT release. I remember looking at GitHub and seeing how he built the code. He was pulling different source codes from different places and sort of like, I think the visual in my head is like Legos, like stacked on top of each other and then would arrange it in a certain way so that it would yield a certain result. He would do certain simulations and trials and would offer it to us, you know, in the community. Oh, what do you think of this mechanic? How about this mechanic? How about this mechanic? To me, it's very creative. It's highly creative and highly collaborative as well. I love that reframing and like recentering. I think what often now is like relegated to either paid or unpaid labor. You know, like in the traditional music industry right now, the quote unquote art is just the music or whatever. And, you know, and you think of like, okay, someone goes and writes an album by it. Well, these are just offshoots of marketing and ways to obtain capital. But when I've written bios for bands and it's a band that I really love, it's like, I feel like I'm giving a little bit of myself. But in the end, yeah. it's just like some kind of like anonymous thing that gets sent around in the PR packages and they get, you know, a few hundred yeah. bucks for it. It almost just like, like sullies, like, I mean, not trust, like I always do want to get paid for that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah, it extends and enhances kind of the collaboration. It's just so easy to forget there's so many other people doing creative things outside of like literally just writing and performing the music um yes and so yes. This, this is, it's a great way to like recenter that process around creativity as opposed to just production or like creating a product in exchange for money absolutely a thousand percent even if i am a solo artist it's really not just a solo effort it is always a team effort you're working with agents, with a manager, for example, and you're collaborating with, with writers. You are collaborating with like all these different people. And so I, I don't know if this is like American, like hyper-individualism, but a part of me thinks that, dude, no, it, it actually takes a group effort to release something. And so tying it back to chaos, we are acknowledging that, that it's not only just musicians, it's not only just about the music, it's not just only about the art or the NFT itself. It's this whole, this whole thing is art. I've been thinking about this recently, for some reason, in the context of writing. I'm a writer, but I'm also an editor. And like, probably most of my time is spent editing because that's what it's easier to get paid for, basically. But I've been thinking about also how the work that editors do, for example, behind the scenes, is just like nobody even knows that you do it. Oh my God, for real. But it is it is art. It's a craft. It's a practice. It's very fine work. And like sometimes you might even end up spending longer on the piece than the writer did for whatever reason. Like yep. you no one ever sees it or knows. And so I like this idea of calling out all of the forms of labor that are involved in an artistic project. Yes. And there's all these other skills 
involved in editing, right? And please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I'm certainly not a writer, but my sense is that if you're editing, say, a piece, there's all these sort of like models that you have to use. Like, what, what does it sound like from the audience perspective? Is this true and correct? Does this flow nicely? All of these are like skills, you know, that are stacked on top of each other. And we tend to forget that to be an editor, you, you have to have a handful of skills smushed together to create and to augment possibly this piece that you're editing. Exactly, yeah. It's very akin to being a producer on a song or an album. It's sort totally. of, you know, cra helping craft the, the sort of bigger picture. Also coding, I've often thought that maybe people who are editors could be good at coding because it's just like such fine and detailed and patient work. I've certainly thought about learning to code <laughs> for that reason, yeah. Speaking of storytelling, can you tell us a bit about the like lore component of this project? Because this might be novel to people who are not exactly in these sorts of spaces. What was the narrative or like the greater story that you chose to tell across the four acts of the project? And who is Eris? I, I know that there's like some kind of like goddess that this is about. Can you tell us more about her? Yeah, totally. Um, so when we were planning Camp Chaos, we sort of like were seeding the idea on our heartbeat calls. Uh, you know, these are community calls that we do every Monday. This was like early this year, maybe January, February. One of our community members who goes by Shamanic um, introduced the idea of discordianism. And we were all like, what is that? What is that, dude? Essentially, discordianism is, say, a religion and mythology, which I believe still exists today. And their main goddess is Eris, the Greek goddess of chaos and discord. Funny enough, you know, our, our main coordinating tool is discord. Womp, womp. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> and so it clicked, you know, it clicked. Everyone just started like, oh, shit. Ares has to be part of our narrative. Ares has to be part of the story. And so we leaned into this lore, you know, we built on top of it. We had members of our crew acting out as, as Ares, you know, giving creative prompts, aiding in decision making, and pushing the project forward. What would that look like? And then they're acting out prompts. I mean, is it something they would just put into the Discord and be like, go forth? Oh, totally. So one example that comes to mind was, you know how um, we've separated our time containers by acts, right? And so act one was order. By act two, Eris, who was acted by one of our members, uh, Yara, jumped on our community call and offered, you know, a prompt. You know, act two is upon us. I have these three options for you. Choose one and choose wisely. I believe in, in, in the Ares mythology, Ares presented an apple, a golden apple. And so we presented our participants. There's these three golden apples that you can choose. And each one of them are different from each other. And each one of them, when you choose them, it would yield a different outcome for you. And, you know, and that informs like how the groups are being teamed etc cetera, etc cetera. and so that's one example one uh, event that, that that really stood out to me was on our release party Eris was there guiding the crowd you know gui gui guiding the audience and also like sharing i guess her side of the story you know um i mean i can send some some audio files of how that sounded like but it really 
made the release party, even though it's virtual, really immersive and people were super into it. Yeah, it had a very, very good energy. There's something about lore or leaning into lore that helps, you know, make the whole experience immersive and mystical and possibly like magical, you know, like it takes you to another place. And so we wanted to maybe hold that and lean into that whenever we do creative projects like this. Right. And it creates space for play, which is such a core component of creativity and collaboration. And I think that's something that's so increasingly, you know, erased or squeezed out of Mm. the creative production process by traditional industries right now. So on the opposite side of play, though, I imagine there have been, you know, some challenges to having to wrangle and work with a group of 77 people. Can you talk about what some of those were and how y'all ended up navigating them? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's an understanding um, within the project, within the chaos community, that this is an experiment. There are sometimes things that are uncomfortable. There are certain things that are uncertain. There are certain structures that are being built mid-flight. And so we set that as an expectation. And, you know, of course, we're still going to meet some challenges. Certainly, you know, divergent point of view is one of them. There's also like expectation, misalignment, and, and, and time commitment. Because a lot of our membership are also working musicians. Of course, they also have to do other things. Time zones could be a challenge. I think we had people from Europe, from South Asia, from South America joining the, this cohort as well. And so it took a lot of like communication on the band's part, on the team members' part of like, yeah, like the, these are the times that I'm available. Let's all work together to actually push through the deadline. And then also, you know, since it's a, it's a mix of like different people with different motivations and different inspirations, some people are working more than others. You know, there's certainly misalignment there sometimes that emerged. But I think in the end, communication really is a big thing. And so we encourage communication for, for it to be open, you know, for it to be transparent. Like if, if there is an issue please reach out to your guides or to the stewards of the project and we'll help you out. I think open communications and open feedback loops also help too. We have a certain cadence of like community calls every Tuesday and then open office hours every Friday. And that became spaces for people to to give feedback and to also sort of like share what's on their mind. Because it's it's a headless kind of non-hierarchical concept. How are things like accountability and like follow-through managed while still, you know, keeping it this kind of egalitarian horizontal workflow? Yeah, I think there are some elements from, say, typical product design, product building or software design that we sort of incorporated onto the program. One of them is like shared documentation right? Just really a Notion document that is continuously updated over time. Who is part of what team? What are the prompts for this week? What are the events this week? Do you have any feedback? Here's a form, you know? And I think that really sort of like made all this information from this complex organism legible to all. Um, And so that you could actually see, oh, Mark is working on this or like Matthew is working on this, you know? Because like, Sometimes issues emerge when there's lack of clarity. And so we tried our best to sort of like document everything and have it shared to all. 
We also made our Discord channels open so that people from the music team could also look at, you know, what the devs are doing or like what the visual artists are doing. And then also like offering not only feedback, but also like appreciations. People hype each other up, which is so cool to see and really informed the group dynamic of the project. important to me about this project or to me the most utopian aspect of it was sort of how you ended up compensating people for their work and the value flow system that you designed. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about this and maybe how the system values musical labor differently from what artists are used to in Web 2? Yeah, totally. I mean, I could share a little bit, but first I would like to maybe frame it that all of this is an experiment, you know, changing the music industry or changing like musical labor and how it's valued wasn't a goal, but the goal was really to like, let's build novel, interesting systems that could possibly be better and that could possibly seed change or inform change, you know? And so we tried to, to do our best to create a novel economic system to flow value back to all 77 of us, all 77 artists. It's an imperfect system. It certainly needs to be improved, but it's part of the experimentation process. You know, we've gathered learnings from it, and now we're looking to maybe create better ones in the future. Now, let's see. I need to pull up a doc here. So maybe... Very complicated. It's complex. And maybe in hindsight, it would have been much more simple. <laughs> All right. So here's our value flow. At the start of the project, we deployed a base UBI. No questions asked, no strings attached. By you participating and spending time creating this art, and by you being part of this band, we're giving you this base UBI, which is 0.3 ETH to everyone involved. The next one is what we call self-selection. So every two weeks of the creation and production cycle, we send out a form so that participants could self-evaluate themselves. Have I, have I contributed low, medium, or high? And this pure honor system, right? A side note, there's a lot to be said about like trusting people and they become trustworthy. And so everyone was just completely honest. I think even like super honest, even some, some people who are who I saw did a lot of work, wasn't sure, so they put themselves medium. But anyway, we have also a mechanism that would correct that. So that's part one, self-selection. Two, gratitude flow. The gratitude flow, we've used Coordinate, which is an app that most DAOs and decentralized collectives use. The purpose of this app is so that you can give tokens or be gifted tokens by your collaborators or people who saw you providing value to the Chaos Network. So that's the gratitude flow. Hold back is the last part of the puzzle. And this is a, an allocation of tokens that were held back, you know. And the main purpose of it is to sort of like reward ambient and emergent work 
that happened in camp. Why? Because the gratitude flow, which uses coordinate, uh, we found that it's imperfect and it rewards certain people who are much more active or much louder or much more visible. And so the purpose of holdback is to sort of like correct this, the asymmetries. And so that is our value flow stack. Once you combine all of them together, you aggregate all the tokens spit out from these different mechanics. And now we have like a contribution graph with, with split percentages. And that split percentages are then now imported into the OX splits app, which then flows value to the Chaos members on every NFT sale. I guess I'm wondering, both for myself and for the uninitiated, you mentioned tokens, like for the gratitude flow. Do those translate to currency or what is the ascribed value of the tokens? Mm. Yes. So all of these mechanics use the chaos token, uh, which is an indexical token, really. It doesn't have any value, but more of just like a counter, which would help us figure out the main splits for NFT sales. How did this way of sort of tallying people's contribution and all these different weights inspire different kinds of behaviors among participants or forms of relating? Does it sort of counter the potential like competitive aspects of, you know, people vying for a position or saying that, you know, oh, I did more, or I did less? Mm. Yeah, I think that's something that possibly may always exist. You know, I think this system, uh, as much as novel and interesting it is, still doesn't capture <laughs> truly what value is, you know? But to your question about what sort of forms of relating emerges from this, we found that Coordinate really helps bond people because if you use the app, there is an option there to actually say something nice, you know, together with the deployment of or the giving out of tokens. And to me, I find that to be really very, it makes me feel good. You know, people say thanks for like something that I've helped out with or like people just expressing, oh, you know, this hook that you made is really fire and you're such a good homie. Here's, you know, X amount of tokens. And so that feels good. You know, the self-selection certainly bred a lot of like honesty and trust. And, you know, together with the holdback too, people feel good knowing that some of the work that wasn't as visible could also be rewarded. I love that idea. Yeah, it really undoes or helps sort of heal that fundamental issue of being disconnected from the product of your labor. Even if it's just with a kindness, it anchors you back to it, like through a greater than it's some of its parts kind of community social sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think going through this project and sort of like, also thinking with the economics team of how, because like economics are all tied to also like human behavior too. It involved a lot of like looking over and reading through like social sciences, like how can we use economics to sort of like have or encourage certain behaviors that we want to see. But then economics is also imperfect too. <laughs> right. I mean, we have capitalism right now, you know? Mm -hmm. And so my takeaway is that I'd rather experiment with different economic models that would lead us closer, maybe just a little bit closer, possibly to post-capitalism, you know? And so I see these as attempts 
you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall, trying to see if it sticks. I, I'm not sure if it will reach a level of perfection that would satisfy everyone. You know what I'm saying? Right. But like the quick fix doesn't emerge right away. It's, it's, yes. you know, it's, it's carving out spaces, learning from what doesn't work and continuing that momentum. A thousand percent. But so, you know, you didn't just embark on this incredibly ambitious experiment. You guys actually pulled it off, like, in a financial sense. What makes this structure a viable alternative to traditional band or industry formats in a financial sense? Clearly, it's doing well. It's exceeding expectations right now. But maybe in a broader application or long-term sense. That is interesting, as much as I like to think about the future and what sort of systems we can incorporate for, you know, creative labor, music included, I guess find myself not thinking a lot about like what the future application of this could be. I'm coming from a perspective of like experimentation and play. We really didn't set out to fix the music industry. And I guess speaking personally, I would rather explore at the edges and see what's possible. And if others can take inspiration from this experiment that possibly leads to a change, then that would be so cool. But I guess I, I, I feel a little disconnected from the traditional sort of like music world at this point. Um, that might also change. But at this point, I'm really not thinking of ways to sort of like combine them or bridge the gap between, say, Web 2 and Web 3. Although maybe at some point that needs to be a conversation with the team, like how do we actually bridge these systems? But there are people who are doing that already. You know, there's this startup called uh, Revelator that's using blockchain for royalties and syncs. But but Songcamp doesn't aim to be something like that. Yeah, it's also hard to even at this early stage draw a hard line between Web 2 and Web 3 because even Web 3, I feel like, is still very tied to web two platforms in certain ways like one of the main ways that people communicate and get the word out about projects is still twitter and like anything that's connected to twitter is still going to be like subject to those twitter dynamics so i guess it's experimentation sort of at the edges of what exists and it's a counterculture people have all sorts of automatic associations with crypto especially people who don't follow it very closely sort of like the financialization of everything like hyper libertarian sides of crypto but there is like a, a strong and very passionate kind of counterculture beneath it and musical counterculture artistic counterculture and i guess maybe you know like all countercultures things will eventually sort of trickle up <laughs> yeah yeah that is my sense too, Emily. When you say countercultures and subcultures, I think of people who are sort of like self-selecting, right? I grew up uh, uh, being part of like the punk community. And so, you know, there's a specific political leaning there. There's a specific expression. There's a specific sound. There's a way of dress. And if you are not taking part in these, let's just call it like soft protocols, then you are out. You are not part of it. You signal your, your involvement of it through adhering to certain soft protocols of what this subculture sort of like enforces. And so, yeah, that, that self-selects people who really resonate with that sort of like culture. 
And maybe where we're at with Web3, especially honing in on Web3 creative ecosystems, it's self-selecting. It invites people who think in experimental ways, who possibly think outside the box. And in reality, not everyone is like that. Some people would rather just have a finished software that they can use to distribute their music. And that's totally fine. I think we would get there at some point. But right now, it's everything so janky. Everything is messy. It really calls a certain type of person to participate in it. could also sort of see it within this sort of broader trend of people in general, not just Web3 inclined people, sort of creating pockets of independent artistic production or like, you know, even Substack, which is not Web3, it's pretty Web2 or maybe somewhere in between Web2.5. People sort of just creating their own like independent media networks. There's definitely something in the air of like people feeling that the Web2 status quo is not enough. And this is sort of one pocket of it. And it also, of course, like cross fertilizes with other outsider cultures that are emergent, I guess. Yeah, that's a good flag. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think these types of demographics, these types of people who participate in creating their own way of doing things, they're certainly uh, maybe of a different make, you know? I mean, for example, going with like artists and creatives using whatever is available to them. We see that in Web3. It's, it's pretty obvious. But looking back with my experience with like internet music culture in, around mid-2010s, I was part of this collective called SPF 420, which prides itself as like an internet music collective. They would hold shows at Tiny Chat, which is like, think of it just like a janky version of, of Discord. And we would hold shows there, virtual shows in low resolution. The sound is crappy, but then everyone enjoyed it. That was a subculture, you know, which then members of it, some of the affiliates of it went on to build and contribute what now is called hyperpop. And so it's quite fascinating to see early adopters. And at some point, maybe this ties back to what you said, Emily, that at some point, you know, after the early adopters, it would trickle up and you would have these fully designed, fully working, nice user experience for everyone. I keep thinking about what you said earlier about, you know, we're not we're not trying to fix the current music industry or web two music industry. There's something kind of refreshing in that, and I do feel like sort of inherently countercultural because collectively it feels like maybe folks who at one point wanted to quote unquote fix things or dissatisfied with the way they are are no longer interested in fixing things so much as just finding something else. And I think so much of what makes participating in culture right now have an air of doom to it a little bit is this sense that things need fixing. Mm. And forgetting that there are just paths of possibility out there that don't require, you know, when you're trying to quote unquote fix something, you're still bound to a model that just might be inherently broken for any given context. What is a sense of fatalism? Exactly, exactly. And so just thinking of creating something else is something so freeing. And I feel like the pop cultural zeitgeist, if we're talking that dichotomy with counterculture, there's a real sense of fear of saying, well, let's just scrap this and see what else is out there. And that leaves the possibility of mistakes without kind of a negative connotation to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And we need yeah. we need more of those mistakes that so we can build better systems instead of just trying to patch over the old ones. 
A thousand percent. And, and, and mistakes are, are part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of experimentation. It's part of like building better systems. That resonates. Also just needing, you know, ways of finding community or like new formations of scenes is like probably to me at least like the biggest draw of these kinds of countercultures. Just people being sick of, you know, talking to each other as boxes and wanting to find new ways to connect, new ways to organize. A thousand percent. Yeah. And Emily, I, I know that you were also part of MetaLabel, the assembly, right? Or was it was I tripping? Yeah. So Andrea and I and a couple of other journalist friends, we just had like a Discord group called FunDAO. It's not really a formalized DAO, far from it. And we actually kind of take inspiration from the work that you guys did with Chaos to think about like, you know, how could we come together to do experiments and kind of independent publishing? So that's how we ended up uh, going through the Meta Label Workshop. Love it. I love it. I'm, I'm so excited that you all are, are exploring how that could look like too. I think another example out in the wild, I'm pretty sure you all already know, um, channel. Of course. For sure, yeah. So I think what these things offer us are sort of like recipes, right? But, you know, I, I, I love cooking. And so recipes are all, only, to me, I see them as a starting point. Where the magic lies is you giving your own spin to it. Exactly. I want to clarify, like, I personally am not, I'm not a huge crypto, like I work for a DAO, but my reason for wanting to enter this world, it was mostly because I was just, oh, this is where the most interesting conversations about this stuff is going on. That's also part like why Andrea and I wanted to start this podcast, because there isn't a lot of forums in the sort of mainstream media spaces that we're used to navigating where these conversations are even valorized or attempted. Yeah, that made sense to me. I really, really valued the the conversations that are happening because all of them come from like, well, one, people that I look up to, people who are active cultural producers, right? And that includes, you know, both of you all. And MetaLabel also shares the same sort of trait where all these interesting discussions pulled from all these different domains and different knowledge bases are all being sort of synthesized, fertilized, distilling, fermenting, you know? It is in these spaces that, that really sort of encourage that rich way of thinking that, that I truly appreciate in, in, in most Web3 communities that I'm a part of. And that's it for the free version of this episode. For the rest of our conversation with Mark, including some thoughts on where counterculture is headed, the importance of normalizing artistic patronage, and Mark's tips for how to dip your toe into these spaces, sign up for a paid subscription for just five bucks a month. That's less than most beers and arguably just as refreshing. Do that over at our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. That's it for our show. Today's episode was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is composed by Mark Donica. To dig deeper, head to our Substack. We've got lots of links. 
That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share us with friends or on your socials to help support independent journalism.